Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I are here this afternoon, and we have back special guest Chris Bennett of the Farm Journal, Chris Bennett's. Chris, good to see you again, man. Hey, good to see y'all. It's a privilege to be on the Crop Doctors Podcast, and thank you very much for having me. Chris was on with us earlier, and we talked about a lot of things, how he got to where he is today, and we just honestly just ran out of time, and we wanted to do Chris justice and, and let him tell some stories because, trust me, he's full of stories. And so that's why we invited him back down today and that's what we're going to get to but before we start you you talked a lot last time about growing up and moving back and forth between the states and jordan so when you're a little kid what did you want to be when you grew up uh other than the six million dollar man i think i wanted to write something i wanted to be able to tell stories okay it was just a constant almost voracious consumption of reading material if I could get hold of it. And, you know, I, I, I tell anybody, one of the best things you can do is recognize the limits of your own intellect and recognize where you're at. And I did that early. And once I had that set in my mind, I knew what I had to jump on and learn beyond that. So whatever, what is it Socrates said? Uh, knowledge is knowing that you know nothing, something like that. I can't remember. But I took that and created my own little bitty thing. Yeah, I always say I don't I don't know that much. I just don't stand in one place long enough for anybody <laughs> to figure it out. I'm going to steal that. I love <laughs> no, that. I'm welcome. still a work in progress. That's <laughs> all there is to it. We're <laughs> still in its infancy at this point. What did you want to be when you, when you grew up, when you were little? <clears throat> I honestly don't know that I have an answer to that, Jason. Okay. It probably changed over time. Totally changed over time. I mean, I have no idea. Well, no. Now that you mentioned that, fourth grade, I think I wanted to be an archaeologist. That was archaeologist or anthropologist, something like that. I know, bit of a stretch. Okay. Go explore parts of the world with all sorts of things that you can look at. Yeah, so that's no no wrong answer. No, no, no baseball player in my world. <laughs> that's Chris over there swinging a bat. My my dad played baseball, and I I I didn't play any sports. That that's been the the difficult conversation in our house recently is that Ward wants to play football, and I am excruciatingly opposed oh, to I, somebody. I, I was going to be the middle linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> yeah. That was my career aspiration. <laughs> no, and then I think I got to one point when I was in graduate school or whatever and realized, you know, huh, maybe if this grad school gig doesn't work out, I'd go be like a field goal kicker or something. I don't know. But, you know, no experience in any of that. Just, you know, pie-in-the-sky type dreams. <laughs> That's, I really don't think I could do that. Chris, over the years, I've kept up with your stories, and then you do a good job of sending me stories that you've written. You kind of stuck your toe in this when you were on with us before, but just telling the people that the types of things that you write. And I think you were accurate in your description of it. I think you left some detail out. So I think he and, sells himself a right. little bit short. So once you give folks a little bit more detail on the kind of things that you write, because I don't know of another writer that writes like you write. You've got a pretty unique lane that you write in. So once you give folks a little bit more detail about that, you bet, Jason. I, 
I tend to, and, and certainly I do standard stories about farming as well. But uh, when I've gotten my druthers, uh, the, the stories typically are the odd and the unusual, the forgotten in farming. And that may be directly in the rows with something as simple as, hey, I'm going to do a story on farmland marbles and why they're there and the quantities and who hunts them and, and, and the history behind that. Okay. Or I may do a convoluted ag crime story that has more tentacles than Medusa's head. Or I may do a story of a farmer that's run over by government and has no other means than to you know, put up his dukes on the back 40 and, and try and defend himself. Or a tragedy that m- maybe a family just desperate for some honor or recognition of their loved one that passed away in a terrible circumstance on a farm. And maybe I can help the tiny bit of closure. And in that same vein, maybe a, a terrible or bizarre farm accident. It's, it's amazing the, the amount of bizarre accidents, not just harm on farm, but the odd circumstances behind those. So when you, when you wrap all that up in a, in a ball, it's very difficult. But if I was to lay out all the stories right now that I'm working on, Jason, I assure you, some of it you'd, you'd think, okay, that's not going to be uh, kosher for a, a farming magazine. But I, I would submit to you that uh, sometimes we overthink it and people look at farmers and think, well, they, they want to know about A, B, and C. I just say, look. These guys have extremely unique, again, isolated lives on their properties. And once you get to know them, then you know that they are just like everybody else. They want something unique pertaining to their life, even if that's on a tangent. So when a guy kills, like Jim Bowen did this summer, when he kills two six-foot-plus timber rattlers on his ground, the first thing into my head is I want to know the exact circumstances behind that because that is a phenomenal story. I mean, a farmer's wife in 1850, right, refuses to move, leave her 300 acres and move where he wants her to go and instead, you know, takes a pistol against her breast and blows a hole through her heart. That's a story to be told, particularly if she's, you know, still buried there at the foot of the house. I could go on and on I, because I want to emphasize what, I, what I t- I've told y'all in the past. I, I, I just, these stories are there, and they're waiting to be told by the hundreds, by the thousands, and no one's telling them, unfortunately, but there they are. Do they come to you, or do you go looking for them? If I'm blessed enough to have someone call me or email me or text me with a tip, Maybe that story comes in like that. Or maybe I, maybe I read someone else's story in another magazine, and I think, boy, that's the worst job I've ever seen. I'm going to redo that from another angle. Or I see one paragraph, and I think, you, know, you should have parked your vehicle right there, that fourth paragraph, that detail. That's where the story was at. So you rush through like that. Or uh, maybe just simply something gets covered in local media. Let's say it's a county in southeast Arkansas that something happens. The chances of national media covering that might be pretty small. So it falls through the cracks. And then as far as uh, unique individuals, part of that is just simply being around long enough to have rubbed elbows with enough people that you know, okay, that individual there has some great stories. Sit down and drink some coffee with them, and they will lead you. So over the years, the stories that you've written, 
pick one out for us and tell us one of your memorable stories? Uh, Jason, Tom, uh, <laughs> no question, one of the most memorable is from recent times. And it involves a gentleman that's a combination. He's a grifter, classic con man. And he was able to take advantage of the handshake, the handshake segment of agriculture. And he was a P.T. Barnum, kind of Elmer Gantry-esque, a Walter White, all thrown into one ball. He rolled into uh, Hampton Cove, Alabama. Mm, that's just outside of Huntsville, really. I think it's back in 2012. He had, a, he had a long history with him that they didn't know about. He'd been involved in selling uh, survival bunkers up in, I think, in Kentucky. Uh, illegally, of course, just made up stuff. He had uh, sold... Miracle Juices, he'd been involved in robocall schemes. He'd been in, I think he'd been in Leavenworth for, uh, I can't remember, uh, uh, check fraud and other things. Anyhow, he rolls into Huntsville, Alabama in about 2012, and he advertises that he wants to start an organic tomato selling joint where he's going to go buy organic, organic tomatoes from individual growers and sell them across the southeast in Publix, and there was another grocery store as well. He claimed to have contracts, and he actually contacted and tried to throw the wool over the eyes of Mississippi State's Rick Snyder, who was on to him very fast. And in fact, I personally feel that uh, Rick Snyder was instrumental in keeping this gentleman, whose name was Jamie Lawhorn, out of Mississippi. So most of his fraud took place in Bama and Tennessee. Anyhow, he ordered, he advertised, hey, Give me $10,000, and I will build on your ground. I'll build you a wind tunnel, a, a somewhat of a greenhouse. And not only that, I'll build you the tunnel. I'll give you the expertise, and I will work on organic certification with you. And I will buy your tomatoes in perpetuity. So, Tom, you give me 10000 I give you all of that in return. I'll buy your tomatoes in perpetuity at whatever the organic value was, which, as you know, is relatively high. So people began to jump on it. And, of course, like any Ponzi scheme, he gave the first people in what they wanted. He gave them what they wanted to hear and what they wanted, what, what they needed. So the high tunnels were indeed built, and he advertised free pickup. So he would go to their properties and, and, and pick the stuff up and then take it, supposedly, to the uh, <laughs> grocery chain. So the money's adding up, 10000 10000 10000 10000 and it's, it's happening very fast. And he's throwing his reputation out there to the community. Everything looks good. Everything has shine. People are jumping on his train in very, very rapid fashion. He, he, he's, he's growing. And once he had enough people in, then he launched into reality. Question. Yes, sir. Is there a history of tomato production in that part of Alabama? Because I know like in Arkansas... There's a little corner of the world that has a pretty long history of tomato production. So I guess there, there would have to be interest in semi-commercial tomato production. Right. He, he was taking, obviously he was taking advantage of uh, southeast weather. And there's always local tomato production in, in most southern states. But he was wanting to take this to a commercial level, and he was radio, internet. He advertised everywhere. He was a pedestrian-looking fella. 
If you passed him in Walmart, you would not have known who he was. If I remember right, and I'm going off the top of my head, he was about 5'10". He, he, he looked like your neighbor, very mild-spoken, very interesting when I was interviewing people. A lot of them said he had a northern accent. A lot of them said he had a strong southern accent. A lot of them said he had something in between. So I suspected that he formulated his words according to his audience. He was that kind of crafty, crafty creature. So when he had scores of growers built up, and keep in mind, I should have emphasized this, a lot of the people that invested with him bought more than one greenhouse. In other words, they give him 20000 they give him 30000 and he'd build three of them on their property, help them start the planting, and then, hey, I'm coming back to, to buy these. And these were retired teachers. These were people that had uh, middle-class incomes. These were retirees. They were also... Absolutely. There also were farmers, regular regular American farmers involved as well because everyone thought this is a, a legitimate means to capture some ancillary income of, I don't know, 50000 60000 a year. No one went into this, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to uh, grab the gold here. This was, we work. This gentleman will buy from us, and everything will be on the up and up. But when he got his, I can't remember how many growers he sucked in. The, the more growers he sucked in and the Ponzi scheme rose higher, the pyramid rose higher, the bottom began to shake, which is always what happens with Ponzi schemes. And as the bottom shook, he was no longer picking up tomatoes from these people. And the word got out that, hey, do you know what Jamie Lawhorn is doing with the tomatoes? He's actually taking them back to his headquarters and he's throwing them out the back. In other words, none of them are going to grocery stores, and he's simply using the funds that come in to finance his own lifestyle and then finance the wind tunnels that are being built. So by this point, he's got, I can't remember, something like a couple of million dollars in clientele. And the local media there caught wind of what was going on. They began to ask questions, and, and over a period of months, people got nervous, and that Ponzi scheme at the bottom had too many planks or too many blocks taken out, and it began to rattle. So Jamie Lawhorn, I think at this point he was in his 40s or 50s, uh, maybe in between there. He absconded. He just hit the road one night, packed his bags, and, and he was gone. As far as the people there in Huntsville knew, there was no catching him. They knew he'd surface somewhere. Well, what the fella did was move from Alabama straight. Well, I don't know about straight, but he pops up in North Carolina. And this time he's wise enough to stay behind the curtain. So his next scheme, it's going to be in agriculture, but he's going to stay behind the curtain. So he essentially steals a couple of million from the people around Huntsville. And he moves on to North Carolina and starts a worm scheme. I think it was Red Wigglers. And it was something like 5,000. You give me 5,000, I'll give you all of the equipment to essentially grow worms. And as you do so, I will buy them in perpetuity from you and he changed his name at this point he's James Gilly or he was Roger Clemens I can't remember he had a few unique what's the word fake names out there that he that he went by and I can only assume that when he went to North Carolina he was copying what had happened in Oklahoma in roughly the year 2000 Oklahoma was the scene of one of the greatest or wildest or saddest agriculture cons of all time with a guy named Greg Bradley, who was in his 40s, that busted out a $25 million worm scam from Oklahoma that spread across the United States. He hauled in $25 million 
and then died in unusual circumstances in his 40s. All that money went busto. But guys like Jamie Lawhorn, I assume, probably took some notes from Bradley's experience in Oklahoma. So he then begins hidden the worm scam in North Carolina. They set up in a strip mall. You come in, we'll supply you with all the fertilizer, the bins, what have you, all that you need. Of course, it's give us the 5000 He took advantage of handicapped people. He took advantage of people with uh, kids that were sick, again, retirees. And in that scheme, once again, he waited till it got so high, people began to ask questions. And I think on that one, he was promoting his, he was buying your worms and selling them to Home Depot. I think that's what he, his claim was. Anyhow, when that one went busto, he tried to leave North Carolina and escape to his next scheme, which would then bring in Dog the Bounty Hunter, right? That would actually suck in Dog in the, the middle of all this. So I'll pause for a breath right there just to make sure I hadn't lost y'all. Are worms that big a deal? I, I, I just, I'm sitting over here. I, I mean, for fishing, they would mm-hmm. be. But Well, when, mm-hmm. when Chris mentioned the worm scam in North Carolina, I thought, man, that sounds familiar. Well, then he mentioned the one from Oklahoma. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, that. I don't remember either one of those, but I, I probably would shy away from a worm story on the Internet. Just There were guys in Mississippi that got nailed by the Oklahoma scam in roughly 2000, uh, 1998, 2000. That, Tom, that is one of the wildest episodes in, in agriculture that I've ever come across. But this Lawhorn fella, uh, he, maybe he raised the ante there. Because he picked up on DWI somewhere in Carolina, or maybe he was in South Carolina. He's, he's moving at this point. He's picked up. He brought back to Huntsville. I can't remember what the exact amount his bail was, but he went to Bill Honia's bail bonds. Bill Honia is an associate of Dog the Bounty Hunter. Bill Honia's bail bonds place there in Alabama, I think the gentleman – Y'all remember the young man, well, he's not young, but he had a ponytail. He was in Dog the Bounty Hunter's show named Leland, who was Dog's son. I think he now works for Bill Honia there in Alabama. But anyhow, Honia forks over the hundred grand to get this Lawhorn out of jail. Remember, he's been picked up for DWI and he's going to be rung up for his Ponzi scheme there in Huntsville. And so he just goes home. Gets his mama, Lawhorn gets his mama to take him to the bus station. And once he's at the bus station, then he, he cuts off his ankle bracelet and disappears. So Honia calls Dog the Bounty Hunter then. He says, Dog, man, I got this guy. He describes everything I've described to you. He says, 100 grand. So Dog starts looking out west and sends out all of his contacts. And Honia begins to scour the southeast. And they go through a series of stakeouts. They go through a series of false leads, and months go by, and they can't catch this Lawhorn fella. And finally, Honia gets a tip that says the Lawhorn guy is running a cucumber scam in Florida. It's got to be the same guy. So Honia then picks up one night, takes off to Florida to see if he can catch this Lawhorn fella who is now running, I think it was, you pay me 5000 and I give you all the goods for pickles. He teach you how to grow, I think it was Paco Pickles was his business. Paco Pickles, you, you grow the cucumbers and so on. 
and bring them back to me and I'll buy them in, in perpetuity. I think that's like the fourth time I've used that word. So when I was in, I interviewed Honia for the story and he explained to me dog's involvement in one of the most bizarre things. He said, yeah, dog will be glad to talk to you. And, and so will his son Leland. So he gave me their numbers. I had their cell numbers and I called first, I called up Leland and he picks up the phone. I could tell it was his voice from TV and I tried to explain who I was. And the next thing I know, I literally could hear crashing footsteps. I could pop like pounding pavement and a crash and the phone goes dead. And I thought, surely that didn't just happen. Surely he didn't just take, but anyway, I lost him. So I, I, I dialed, uh, I dialed dog cell, which I'd been given by Bill Honia. And dog picks up. I, I was some way out number. I don't remember if it was in Hawaii or in Colorado. It was way out number. He picks up, and I explain in 10 seconds who I am and how I got his number. And just as sure as I'm talking to y'all, once again, I hear a crash. I hear running on pavement because dog wears those big heel boots. And he says into the phone, you know, brother, I got to go. And click. And I thought, <laughs> this is no way. I just lost dog. And so I called Bill. I said, I lost the dog. He said, man, dog's going to call you. You just wait. And sure enough, a day or two goes by, dog calls me up. And I got to interview him about Bill and about this, about this chase. And, and just incidentally, by the way, uh, dog treated me like he'd known me forever. Just the kind of guy that I, I suspect talks to people just like they're regular. It was quite a blessing. Anyway, Bill Honey is on his way to pick up his Jamie Lawhorn, fellas. This guy's on his third scheme in a matter of months. We go from tomatoes, we move on to worms, and now he literally is dealing in illicit pickles outside of Orlando. <laughs> now, that tells you right there, right? That tells you right there that he has a network. I don't know the network. I don't know who he's in contact with. I don't know where the kettle of money is buried. But all of these things took a tremendous network. They took a tremendous amount of money. And Honia goes down there, and he stakes out Lawhorn at this, I think it was a Candlewood Suite, something like that. And they swooped in, they caught him, and they had him. And they began the instant drive back to Huntsville. And I think Honia told me they took this Lawhorn fella, stuck him in the front. They have some particular shackles that they use. And Honey has seen it all. Honey has chased a member of the Gambino family. He's chased uh, a couple of more oddities. And he told me that he thought he was dealing with a white-collar guy. But when he got Lawhorn in the vehicle beside him, and that was like a 10- or 12-hour drive back to Huntsville, he said it was one of the few times in my life as a bounty hunter that I got scared because I didn't realize I had the tiger by the tail. And uh, Lawhorn attempted to bribe him to let him out by the side of the highway. Of course, Honia, stand-up guy, wasn't about to do that. But he said that uh, Lawhorn began to regale him with tale after tale of illegal activity, some of it in agriculture, some of it not, and uh, just outlandish things such as, you know, trying to rip the U.S. government off of a yacht and a bad check. And I, I knew from his records that he indeed had served time at Leavenworth. So Honia takes him back all the way to Huntsville. They book him. He goes and he's sentenced. And he's sentenced for the Huntsville crime, not for the Carolina crime and not for the pickles. He's sentenced for the $2.1 million fraud 
involving organic tomatoes. And believe it or not, y'all, there's some kind of white collar release from Alabama prisons. And he's, I think he's sentenced to 15 years. And after two years, the doors swing wide and he walks. So what's he involved in today in agriculture? I, I don't know. I often think about hemp. And I think you know of the Wild West about hemp. that might give him an avenue in. But wherever he's at, I would reckon he's truly behind the curtain now. But I, I fully expect, and I mean this, that someday Hollywood or some famous author is going to tackle the uh, lawhorn tale, which is a multi-layered cake like nothing I've ever come across. Well, if he was in a high-end pickles, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm just, I'm <laughs> enthralled by that. I'm going to keep coming back to that for the rest of the year. Pickle, pickle scam. Yeah, <laughs> nothing worse than a pickle scam. <laughs> Dude, I hadn't read that one. Uh, I guess I'm speechless. <laughs> That's, you know, it, it harkens back to the, I think it was 1981. Y'all may remember this very well, even though you certainly would have been very young. But in, in 81, 82, up in Minnesota, right during, you know, farming's extreme economic crisis, there was a three guys. One of them was essentially a televangelist, and the other two were, I guess, in a way, one of them was more of a circus ringmaster, and the other one was a farmer finance man. The three of them got in cahoots to push Jerusalem artichokes on people, and Jerusalem artichokes, if anybody's listening just simply doesn't know what those are, it's kind of like a small tater, it's a tuber. They came up with a $10,000 or $20,000 buy-in, and they took people, I think it was $25 million. It was It was multi-million dollars, and it was one of the saddest schemes I've ever seen because part of their skit was to use old-time religion on farmers. And just as sure as I'm sitting here in their headquarter building where all of this Jerusalem artichoke scandal was engineered, I was told that they didn't have one. They had two church organs in there. And when people came in... They made sure those organs were going with hymn-like music all the time. And I, I remember I interviewed uh, Jim Nichols, who was the Secretary of Agriculture at the time in Minnesota in the 1980s. And he said that uh, one of the guys who was involved in the scam, you never saw him without a leather Bible under his arm. When he would come in to try and plead his case, he kept that leather Bible under his arm, it, it, it was full of, I mean, just full of tales like that with these three guys. And I think part, I, it's, it's my opinion here, but I think guys in farming now, 2022, they hear these old stories and they think, well, that's, that's back then. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't fall for that today. I, I would advise guys to be careful because when you see things like Turner Grain and other associated things, I don't think there's anything new under the sun. I think this kind, these kind of things cycle back partly because people go to sleep and think, ah, can't happen again. That sounds too good to be true. It usually is. <laughs> and that's, that's not such an easy thing to do. I th there's a lot of trusting people out there, and I think a lot of times it's, it's really difficult sometimes to, to let your guard down, and they want to trust and believe in something. And anybody that runs in there with some religious backing on something, man, that's like that's instant, bad. instant credibility or supposed credibility. Yeah, it's that's beyond evil. Chris, thanks, man. It's it's always good to have you here. 
it's good to good to hear those down home ag related stories that I think a lot of times escape us. But we really appreciate you coming and talking to us. No, sir. I appreciate y'all. It's a privilege to be on here with y'all, and thank you so much. And we'd like to thank our regular listeners again. I mean, you keep the comments coming, good, bad, otherwise. It's it's important. Keeps us going, and we're we're definitely gonna knuckle under and continue this for the rest of the year and and certainly we'll continue to bring you up-to-date content um stay tuned with us on twitter follow us on the mississippi crop situation blog and as always if you need some one-on-one help track us down please thanks chris thank y'all the mississippi crop situation podcast is a production of mississippi state university extension 